weeks. This morning, we are taking a big chunk out of 1 Corinthians. Uh, we're going to be 1 Corinthians, end of 1 Corinthians 3, starting in uh, verse 18. And then we are going to go all the way through the end of chapter 4. Paul is still in his first of five essays. Um, if you were to kind of break down the book of Corinthians, there are five essays that he's writing, and this first one is uh, centering around the concept and the idea of unity. Uh, I do think it's important for us to note that of all the things, if you've studied 1 Corinthians before or you are familiar with it, there's some like really weird and funky things from like um, incest to, uh, which is probably the weirdest, to uh, uh, dif- different worship practices to other things that have like become commonplace in the church at Corinth. Um, and the thing that Paul starts with is unity, this kind of piece that might not, almost, it might not seem as important as some of these other bigger morality issues. But he starts with unity. And he does this because at, at, the, at the core of who we are as a church, we are called to be together. And we are called to be unified. And when that unity is disrupted, when that unity is fractured, so the church begins to fracture. And the church exists today as a family to help show and image what God is like. So Paul starts with unity because who and what the church is helps reflect to the world who and what God is like. And so it's of extreme importance to Paul And we're now like on our seventh or eighth sermon, actually, kind of in the realm of unity. And so we're going to continue to press in. There's going to be a few things here uh, that I think are actually really, really important for us today. I think there's some things that if we're open to what the Holy Spirit wants to do and potentially even convict us of, I think every single one of us are going to have a couple moments where we go like, ouch. And I hope, my hope and prayer is that you are comfortable enough and safe enough in Jesus that you're willing to hear, that you're willing to receive from him. One of the things that's going to come out today is this kind of idea of criticism or cynicism. Again, something that seems to uh, almost be accepted in the church. I, I, to some degree, I, I, almost, I feel like I've almost been trained that part of being a good Christian is being a good critic learning how to critique someone's sermon or learning how to disagree with somebody else's theology or learning how to talk about Calvinism or learning how to talk about gifts of the Spirit or learning to talk about all of these other things. And maybe by accident what's happened is we just have become really, really good at critiquing each other. Sometimes cutting each other and sometimes saying, why would you follow X person instead of following me? Or why would you be a part of that church and not a part of this church? And what Paul's going to speak in today is like, just say, hey, that's not what we're called to. That's not what we're called to. So with that, let's, let's pray, and then we'll dive right in and kind of work our way through the text chunk by chunk. Uh, Lord, we come to you this morning, and we just say thank you, Lord. My heart is really thankful for you today, man. Thankful that you know me. Thankful that you have redeemed me. I thank you that I don't have to pretend with you, even though I do sometimes. 
I'm thankful that you're building your church, your family here together. We just want to come to you and we say, Lord, we invite you to speak. Holy Spirit, we invite you to convict. Hopefully we all declare, God, we want what you want for us. And not just for us, but for your glory and for the purpose of the kingdom of God moving forward in Camarillo and to the ends of the earth. So we present ourselves to you. The pretty parts, the messy parts, the ugly parts. We just say, Lord, here we are. We're thankful that you're a good father and we can trust you with all of us. So we're here to be with you. And we give you permission to convict, to challenge, to encourage, to exhort, to build up. We give you this time. Pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Let no one deceive himself. We could probably just stop our sermon here. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly. Sorry, if I didn't tell you, we're at verse, chapter 3, verse 18 through 23 is what we're looking at first. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. So we start here. Paul's continuing to fight for unity and he starts with let no one deceive himself. So who's Paul talking to here? What type of people? Yeah, he's talking to church leaders. In this section, to, to all of us, he's talking to the church at large, and he's going he's gonna to circle back to talking about leaders, then he's going to circle back to talking about all of us. But people who believe or don't believe, believe. So he's talking to followers of Jesus. He's talking to young people, old people, all people. What does no one mean? Everyone, <laughs> right? So the... So let no one deceive themselves. He's continuing to harp on this idea of the world wisdom versus godly wisdom. He's continuing to harp on this idea that the Corinthians have pressed in on as they've become in love with the idea of intellect, with sophistry, with intelligence, with highfalutin words. He's telling them, stop buying into this lie that the more you know, the more powerful or the more valuable you are to God. Stop it. You see, they're deceiving themselves in context here by thinking that worldly wisdom increases their value or their worth in the kingdom of God. And I know we just started, but actually, I, I want to have a little discussion here together of how do you think... We deceive ourselves. Because that no one, yes, it's, he's talking to a certain group of people in Corinth, but that no one also includes us. Let none of us deceive ourselves. And I, I just, not in a, 
I don't think in an arrogant way, but having done this, and I know I'm still relatively young, all things considered, but having done this now for quite a while, I feel like I've yet to meet a person who isn't deceived, self-deceived in some way, shape, or form. It's part of the human condition. It's part of the fall, right? What, what's the first thing that Adam and Eve do? Self-deceive. Let's hide and cover. So, let's talk for a moment. How do we self-deceive? And if you're so vulnerable, how do you actually deceive yourself? If you are uncomfortable doing the how you deceive, you can do like the generic, like sometimes people are deceived in this area. And that's fine. <laughs> wink, wink. How do we deceive ourselves? Sure. Okay. Huge. That's kind of a regular struggle. That's even Jesus when he says, hey, if anybody wants to come and follow me, he doesn't just say make a decision once. He says daily. Let them take up their cross daily and follow me. Sure. Absolutely. What else? How else do we deceive ourselves? Uh-huh. Sure. Absolutely. So we sometimes we can fall maybe into a similar category of we think that if certain knowledge that I have makes me better than somebody who isn't able to quote that same verse. Yeah. Hundred percent. Absolutely. That works on both sides of the fence. What else? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Sure, sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I think one of the ways maybe I deceive myself sometimes is I don't take sin very seriously. I think I can ho-hum sin relatively easily. And accidentally making sin not something that I willfully sometimes combat or say or, or wrestle with or whatever. So that can be a form of deception for me. What about you? Sure. Yeah. So we morally, so we pull out the moral barometer or the moral scales and we deceive ourselves there. Absolutely. We'll see that in this passage. Mm-hmm. Okay. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. I can 
These are great. Self-deception is something that I think, honestly, if we were to stop here and just challenge one another, not in a guilt and shame sense, but to be willing to look in the mirror and say, God, what do you want me to see? God, in your grace, what do you want to see? What do you want me to see about me? That sounds very like self-helpy. But we're actually going to see here one of, the, one of the main things that Paul's going to talk about, even when it comes down to the section at the end where he's talking about the kingdom of God is not one of talk, but it's of power. We instantly, especially those of us who are more of the Pentecostal side of things, we think instantly to Holy Spirit power, healing, etc. What he's actually talking about is power to transform from the inside out. That the kingdom of God invites a new ruler to reign over all that exists here. And where the kingdom of God reigns, the people of God are submissive to see how he is continually changing them over and over and over again to be more and more like Jesus. I just ask, as just even as a family, as we continue to grow and try and walk and become more and more like Jesus, that we would try and help one another not to be deceived. If you're married... Give your spouse license. This took me a really long time. Well, actually, I gave her license. I just didn't receive it. Um, But give them license to be a mirror for you. Give them license to say, hey, I don't know if you see this or not, but you look kind of gross right now. (laughs) And know that it's not because they hate you. It's because they love you. But I will say, if your marriage isn't built and rooted on the foundation of Jesus and his gospel, you'll never receive that. Because everything that your spouse is going to bring up is going to be scary, and it's going to feel like a threat, and it's going to feel really challenging. So before you can do that, you guys need to be founded and rooted on the gospel. If you're not married, invite a friend. Be in a DNA group. Engage with somebody who you give permission. Hey, will you be a mirror for me? Because when we're left to our own, we deceive ourselves by and large. There's not too many of us that actually have people in our life that we say, hey, mirror me, because I know, left to my own devices, I'm going to deceive myself in some way, shape, or form. Anyway, that's just the first two words. <clears throat> oh, man. So many of us, in, like I said, in different ways, we, we have a tendency to deceive ourselves. We have a tendency to get stuck in our way of thinking and accidentally become arrogant. We begin to actually think people are stupid because they don't think like me. And you guys, this is what Paul is calling out. Paul is calling out a group of people who legitimately think other people are stupid. And that is like, I know like some families here are like, don't say the S word. Uh, it's like, and I like generally joke about that because I'm like, stupid's not that bad of a word. But it's like, it actually is. And it's become so common that we actually think other people are stupid and less valuable because they don't think like we think. And Paul is calling this out. 
He's calling it out and saying that chips away at the very unity of the church. And you may think something like, oh, I'm not that mad about it, or I don't make a big deal about it, but you probably do to your spouse or to your roommate or to one of your close friends. You probably do. And even in doing that, Paul's saying you're chipping away at the very foundation of the church. You're chipping away at the unity of the church. And what is he saying instead? He says, become a fool. Seems very unproverbs-like. Proverbs warns a lot about becoming a fool. But what Paul's saying, become a fool according to the worldly wisdom that exists out there. How does Paul become a fool? He, he decides to proclaim and declare nothing else other than Jesus Christ and him crucified. He says, become a fool. Fall in love with the reality that you actually cannot Earn God's grace. You cannot earn favor with him. You cannot prove to him. You cannot trick him that you are smart enough and become a fool in believing that there was one who has come, who was put upon a cross, who was crucified. His blood was shed, poured out, and he actually died. And he was in the grave for three days or in the tomb, and then he rose victoriously three days later. And him rising from the grave, proved that he was God, that he was the sacrificial lamb to take away the sins of the world. Become a fool, believe in that, and guess what happens as you believe in that? We get to see that the way up is down. Become a fool. And Paul moves then to possessive or inheritance type language, and he says, All things are yours. Become a fool. Abandon this worldly wisdom that you can make God proud of you on your own. Abandon this worldly wisdom that you can earn God's forgiveness. Abandon this worldly wisdom that stature and honor and prestige that the world gives is better than what God can provide. Because what he says is when you become a fool and you cling to Jesus alone, all things are yours. When we choose Jesus, we don't need to boast about Apollos or Paul or Cephas or Cephas, depending on your translation or your pronunciation. We don't need to boast in our intellect because in Jesus, as he says here, the world, life, death, present, and future, they are ours because we are Christ's and he is God's. And this is one of the reasons why unity is so important. When we have unity, we get to enjoy all that God has for us. When that unity is chipped away at through criticism and cynicism and barking and biting and dividing, we begin to lose out on some of those things in which has been purchased for us by Jesus on the cross. So Paul continues to flush this out. What does it look like to maintain this unity, and he begins to talk in four about what leaders' roles are and what they, their identity is, and we'll see that this doesn't just belong to apostles and other leaders, that eventually this is going to be applied to all of us. Verse four, one and two, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Faithful. 
So this is big as the Corinthians in their pursuit of wisdom be by default also has created it's a hierarchy of value, of importance, and of worth. And here Paul silences that as he explains that all leaders in the church are servants. They are servants. And again, this isn't just for apostles and leaders, as we'll see in a few minutes, but this, Paul is talking with him and Apollo specifically. They're servants. This is their identity. Remember, this is Paul writing an essay about unity, and Paul is probably one of the most prolific leaders there is right now. And he's saying, I am a servant. I am not above anybody. This is my identity. I am a servant. This isn't a corporate ladder that we're climbing in the church. Even though Paul is a, an apostle, a foundation leader, excuse me, an, an, a foundation layer. He's one who's been entrusted the gospel. And he starts off by identifying himself and all other leaders as servants. They do not have trump cards. They don't get to bulldoze people. They are serving Jesus and the church. This is big. This is one that the church really needs to hear that all of the leaders in the church are servants. The elders that you guys have appointed in this church, they didn't get there because we gave them like a neat name tag and because all of a sudden they have like really good finances and like everything is like beautiful and like they've got no problems in their life. They're there because they have been serving Jesus and his church faithfully for a long time and they continue to serve Jesus and his church faithfully as elders here. But that's not always the case. Sadly, in a lot of churches, it starts to feel a lot more like a corporate ladder. And there becomes a hierarchy of sorts, which can become very damaging. And here, Paul is chipping away at that. In connection with this, they're not just Servants, they're also stewards. And again, he, he's talking about apostles and leaders right here. They're stewards. Again, normally, I don't know about you guys, but when I hear the word steward, uh, at least for me, the first thing that comes to mind is finances. I don't know if anybody else, if you heard the word steward, generally when I hear that word, the first thing I hear is finances. Um, unless you're like watching old-timey shows where like they're like stewarding a farm or something. Um, but this has nothing to do with finances. It can bleed over into finances. But what Paul says here is that they're stewards of the gospel, that they're stewards of the mystery that's been revealed. A steward is one who watches over, guards, protects, increases his master's investments. Parable of the talents might be coming to mind that Jesus tells as he gives people different amounts of talents, he gives them different deposits, if you will. And he says, hey, what are you going to do with this? And he's looking for a return on the investment. As stewards, Paul is picking up on this. And, and they have a responsibility to steward, to manage, to take care of, and to increase what's been deposited to them.
are your leaders, are your servants, or, excuse me, are your leaders, your being good stewards? It's a good question to ask. For Paul, uh, this isn't a suggestion either. It's not like, hey, it'd be a good idea if your leaders were servants. This is no, it's, it works both ways. Your leaders are servants and your servants are leaders. So if your leaders aren't serving, they're not leaders. This, in essence, is a qualification. This is leaders are servants. This is who they are. And this might sound mundane, but this is really important. There are a lot of people in places of leadership that do not serve. So he uses these two together. We are servants, but we're also stewards. We're servants in the sense that we exist to serve the king and his purposes and his church. And we also are stewards. There's been something that's been entrusted to us. That we have a responsibility to carry the gospel well. So here... Paul is kind of highlighting, he's, he's again trying to, in his battle for unity, we're nothing special. We're servants. And at the same time, we're also set apart. We've got a call to carry the gospel and share it with all who would hear it. We've got to pay attention here to what Paul continues to do as he laid out these identity markers for servants and stewards. He goes on then into this uh, judgment section, which almost seems a little bit odd, but it actually makes a lot of sense. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes. Pronounce who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. It's almost like Paul really knows who he's talking to here. He starts out by saying, look, all leaders are servants and stewards. This is, this is the core element of what, a, what a, a leader needs to be. And they're not just generic stewards, they're stewards specifically of the gospel that's been revealed. And then he basically lays into everyone else and says, stop passing judgment on everyone. Stop biting each other. Remember what's happening at Corinth is they're all like trying to align themselves under certain sophists or certain teachers and leaders and they're throwing threats and they're throwing claims and sometimes even slandering other groups of Christians. Not, we're not even talking about non-believers here. This is within the church. And Paul's coming at them and he's not telling anybody to be a blind sheep. He's not telling anybody to, to, to not think critically or anything like that. But he is calling them to stop pursuing worldly wisdom and weighing things from a worldly perspective. Stop criticizing. Stop being cynical. Are your leaders servants and are they stewarding the gospel which has been entrusted? Then stop being a nitpicker. Stop it. 
See, most of the time, not all of the time, but most of the time, skepticism and criticism are tools used by the enemy as a form of excuse so we can continue to live life the way we want to live it. Most of the time, criticism, skepticism, cynicism is a tool used by the enemy to allow us to do nothing except bark. Think about it in your own life. Think about it in in the ways in which you've been critical or in the ways in which you've maybe pushed off somebody who's maybe spoken in, maybe even harshly into your own life. And a lot of times our, our way of getting out of it is barking back or trying to chip away at their character in some way, shape, or form. Or if you're married or in close relationship with somebody who you have given permission to speak into your life, and sometimes they speak in and you don't like what they're saying, and so what do you do? I criticize back. I'm like, mm, don't want to hear that, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be critical of you. And all of a sudden, we have a 90-minute argument about nothing that's actually the issue. That's never happened. But you guys, these are the types of things that sneak into the church. They are so deceptive. They are so... And what I want us to see is they're evil. The skepticism, the cynicism. cynicism. And you guys, yes, let's be honest. We are human. We are sinners. And we make mistakes. Do I deserve you to be skeptical of me? Yes, I do. Because I am a sinner. But I'm a sinner saved by grace. I'm a work in progress. I do not have it all nailed down. Hopefully if you've been here for a while, you you know this. But we're going on a journey together to try and become more and more like Jesus. I must... I need to be a servant, and I need to be a good steward of the gospel. And if I'm not, you guys shouldn't follow. And what I'm trying to do here is I'm not trying to elevate myself. I'm not trying to say you guys can't be critical. That's fine. But what I'm saying, please, 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 let's stop criticizing and being cynical and letting cynicism prevent us from moving forward. Here Paul is actually speaking from a place of experience. He's currently being judged by the Corinthian church. We don't know the exact ways in which he's being judged, but he's being nitpicked. He's being judged. There are things that are coming against him. And look, he's like, hey, as far as I know, I love his response. He doesn't just pull the God card and say, look, I'm an apostle. Jesus appeared to me on Damascus. Listen to what I say. He doesn't say that. He kind of could have, but he doesn't. What is he? he actually does a little bit of self-assessment and reflection. Look, I've kind of looked at myself like I don't, I don't, I don't recognize that there's anything wrong. And you know what he He doesn't even make it like a massive statement of like, I'm right and you're wrong. He's like, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. I don't know about you guys, but sometimes that's really great to hear from a leader. I might, he might, I might be wrong. There's some things that I may not know about my own heart that's going on in here. 
But guess what? One thing I do know, I do know that God knows, and that one day I'm going to have to stand before him. You see, his response is rooted in his Christology. His response is rooted in who Jesus is and what he's made Paul. And he's made Paul a servant and a steward. And it's also rooted in his eschatology, his end times belief, that one day God is going to judge and all will have to stand before him. And why should I waste my breath? Why should we waste our time and energy like crazy trying to judge each other, chip away at each other? It doesn't mean we're not accountable. It doesn't mean we don't, it doesn't mean we don't call out sin in each other's life. This is more in the critical, the cynicism, the, the thing that chips away at us moving forward together. Why should we waste our time there? Why should we waste our time there? Can we focus on being servants and stewards of the gospel that's been entrusted? Let's put as much energy into that as we do on being critical, and oh my goodness, let's see what happens. Can we trust that God is judge? Can we trust that one day we all are going to stand before the Lord and we'll receive commendation? Or translation actually more literally is praise. Isn't that weird? God will, Paul's saying, God's going to praise you. That's really weird for me. I can't even, like, I can't even use that terminology almost feels blasphemous coming out of my mouth. But what Paul's saying is as God is judge at the end, we will all receive commendation or we will all receive praise. What's amazing is that this is what the Corinthians are looking for. They're looking for accolade. They're looking for praise. They're looking for value. They're looking for worth. And, and what Paul is saying is, Look, as you, if you were to simply grab hold of your identity as a servant and as a steward, guess what? At the end of the day, when we stand before the living God, you are going to receive commendation and praise. Trust me, it's way better than the commendation and praise that you're getting right now. Paul goes on, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit. Brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one another against another. For whoever sees anything different in you, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Okay, here Paul is, is speaking into a specific context, and he's actually talking about spiritual gifts here. He's talking about gifts which have been given. So not only did they have this hierarchy that existed around intellect and knowledge and sophistry and that sort of thing, there also was a hierarchy of gifts. And so as the Spirit has come and fallen upon the church in Corinth, and so once again, they're Christians, the Spirit's present, the Holy Spirit's around, they've made a kind of a mess of things. Because what Paul's highlighting is that they have now created a hierarchical structure that more people are valuable in the church if they have this gift and this gift and this gift. And we're going to get all into this as we get into 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. Paul's saying, stop getting puffed up. Did you do anything to earn that gift? Did you do anything to earn the gift of prophecy? Did you give, do anything to earn the gift of healing? Did you do anything to earn the gift of faith? Did you do anything to earn the gift of hospitality? Did you do anything to earn 
Why are you acting like you did? Stop it. That's dumb. He says, stop going beyond what is written. At this point in time, they did not have the New Testament as, as far as we know in, in a closed sense. There were letters that were in secular that were in circulation, but what he's saying, not going beyond what is written, he's actually looking back at the law and the prophets, all of the Old Testament. And what they're doing is they're creating a structure in which creates value, worth, excuse me, and dignity that is unsupported by Scripture. He's saying, knock it off. Paul, in this section, is beginning to speak a little bit more sarcastically. He's beginning to speak a little bit more poignantly and he's doing this because he's in relationship with them, and as we'll see in just a minute, that he views himself as a father to this community. Again, this is all in the context of fighting for unity within the church. And here the church has experienced the beautiful outpouring of the gifts of the Spirit. And unchecked and unbalanced, they've actually taken those to create an unhealthy and sinful structure where people now have become more valuable, more worthy, more dignified, if you will, because of the gifts that they have. Paul's calling them out, don't do that. That is not why gifts are given to the church. It's expounded in verses 8 through 13. Already you have all that you want. What this means is you've already been filled. Already you've become rich. This is where some of his sarcasm gets pretty thick. Uh, without us, you become kings, and with that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. For I think God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. A little heavy. Here, Paul, as a father, speaks into the church family with a bit of a compare and contrast as to how some of the spiritual elite in the church family are living and acting versus how the apostles are living and have been treated. He does get a little sarcastic, and he's not trying to beat them up. Ultimately, he's wanting to build them up. He's continuing to, to push followers of Jesus to be different from the world to not buy into what this world has to offer, but to trust in Jesus and what he has accomplished on the cross. And the wisdom of this world will regularly combat that. Paul is saying, you guys are looking for honor and prestige here and now, but the way you're going about it, it's all wrong. It's distorted. You're not honored because of the gifts you have or the intellect that you carry. You're not honored more because you prayed for someone and they were healed and because you gave a neat sermon. That doesn't give you honor. That's not what makes you honorable. 
The fact that you live a comfortable life does not mean that you're living the life that God has called you to live. This is incredibly important for us to see in this passage. So many of us have translated comfort for blessing. You guys, I, you, we have to hear this. Comfort does not equal blessing. If we think that, that means that discomfort equals not blessing. <laughs> and guess what? Paul's description of what's happening to him and Apollo seem a little bit uncomfortable, discomfortable, maybe even a little concerning. <laughs> and would Paul for a second say that he was living, his life wasn't blessed? Got to be careful with some of the things that we communicate. See, Paul is confident in the calling God has put on his life. And the calling on his life is the opposite of comfortable or wise to the world. I love that he says they're poorly dressed, beaten, and homeless. I just constantly, like there's certain things like as the more time I've spent in God's word and some of our church tradition, tradition, there's nothing wrong with getting dressed up for church or anything like that. It's just like, I was like, this is the best I got. There's holes in it, but here I am. And it's like, so, I don't know. There's just part of me that's like, this is, Paul is trying to call us. And he, what he's doing here, it's not prescriptive. He's not saying everybody needs to be homeless. He's not saying everybody needs to be as poor as I am. He's not saying everybody needs to be beaten like I am. What he is saying is legitimately, for God's sake, stop looking like the world. Stop looking like the world. Stop pursuing the things of the world. They will not bring you hope. They will not bring you peace. They will not bring you greater satisfaction and intimacy with Jesus. And they actually will hinder unity. We must be on guard for things like this. We must be on guard. What Paul's highlighting here is that their place of honor in this world does not mean that they are mature that they have moved to a place where they no longer need the cross. Your standing in this world does not dictate your standing with Jesus. That's good news, right? Like, I hope that's really good news. Because this world will always say, you're not quite good enough. This world will always say, there's always a little bit more. This world will always say that thing's way cooler than yours that's two years older. This thing will always say, this world will always say you need a house that's a little bit bigger. This world will always say you need another security camera. This world will always say X, Y, and Z. But Jesus says, come to me, you who are heavy laden, heavy burdened. And I will give you rest. 
For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And I will give you rest for your soul. On the cross, Jesus declared, It is finished. Meaning, it's the place where I no longer, I no longer have to try and prove to God my worth. I no longer have to prove to God my value. I no longer have to try and convince God of, hey, I, even though I did a few of those bad things, but like, look at me, like I can juggle for you. Like I can like smile with kids every now and again. I can throw some up in the air. I can like say some cool things. Like I don't have to worry about that because I can say I have put my faith and trust in Jesus, and it's in Jesus and Jesus alone where my sins are forgiven where I find peace, where I find fulfillment, where I find value, where I am known, where I'm loved, where I belong. And it's in him where I find my peace, my rest. Worldly wisdom does not offer any of those things in full, but they do in part. That's why people search after it. This is why Paul regularly comes back to, I declare nothing among you except for Christ and Christ crucified. Paul goes on to invite not just people who are apostles or leaders, but to follow him. Not because he is Jesus, but because he's trying to follow after Jesus with all that he has. As a father to his kids, he is inviting them to imitate him. 14 through 21, we kind of see, and we're not going to read through it because I've talked too much. Uh, And you can look at it yourself. But we see his tone change. He's not writing to shame them, but to warn them as his children. And he invites us to follow him. This is good for us to see. This is good for us to know that we need help in walking through this and being unified together because we can't do this on our own. We need help. See this all throughout Scripture. We see it. In Titus in particular, where we see this older men pouring to younger men, older women pouring to younger women, we need to have these encouragements. We need to have people calling us out. We need to have people pulling us forward and keeping us centered on Jesus. Paul, towards the end of this section, he talks about those who have found themselves in a place of arrogance in the church in Corinth. And I love this. It's kind of like a, a father protects his family. You, you kind of see him like muster up a little bit, and it's kind of cool. And he says, some are arrogant, this is in 18, some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. Uh, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out, not the talk of these arrogant people, <laughs> but their power. I love flexing a bit. I like it. Uh, For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. And what I want to highlight here as we begin to close is our, our default, again, when we hear the language like that, we generally think of Holy Spirit power in the sense of manifestations when we think of how like, the Spirit acts in, through us. And so we're thinking of things like healing, prophecy, uh, all of these things. And what's important for us to understand is even though we believe all of those things to be true, what Paul's highlighting here is something different. Because all of that was already happening in the church of Corinth. Power was being expressed. 
The Spirit was alive and well. The Spirit was moving. What Paul's talking about here is, is not about the manifestations of the Spirit in the sense of these things coming out, but what he's talking more specifically about is the inward transformation coming back to what he talked about identity-wise with him and Paul as a servant and as a steward of the gospel which has been entrusted. This transformation that has taken place from the inside. This is the power that he's referring to in the kingdom of God. We live under the rule and reign of Jesus and we submit our heart to him over and over and over again. But I do love what he highlights here. The the kingdom of God doesn't consist of just talk. This is what the Corinthians were really good at. And I feel like this is where we're really similar to the Corinthians. We talk really well. We can talk the talk. Again, we love to like debate our different theologies or we love to debate our different sports teams or we love to debate you know, uh, whatever TV or movie that you're watching. We love to talk. But remember, in 1 Corinthians 1.9, God is faithful. You have been called into covenant participation with Jesus and his church. That isn't about talk. That is about action. That is about being a family, moving together. So for us, as we leave, not we leave, we're going to respond now in worship, in singing. If you're singing worship team, you guys can come up. I, I, I want to encourage you in, in a few ways. One is, don't be self-deceived. And one of the best ways we can be, cannot be self-deceived is by inviting other people around us to actually speak into our life. People who know us. Know that they love you and give them permission to speak truth into your life. Give them permission. I know from firsthand experience, unless permission is given, everybody's going to feel really nervous about saying anything. And so give permission. But these people need to be trusted. We don't give permission to anyone. We give permission to trusted people who recognize their identity as servants of Jesus and as stewards of the gospel. Don't give anyone permission to speak into your life. That can be really dangerous. But find somebody trusted that you can. The other piece in here would be that I would just encourage you, I'm not even going to say stop being critical and cynical, Would you just ask God to show you how you are? Just ask God to show you how you are critical and cynical. And just see if he reveals like, oh my gosh, that is so much more present than I thought it was. And just ask him, hey, God, what do you want me to do with this? God, what do you want to do with this? And then finally, just as we continue to grow as a church family together, would would we realize that Uh, the kingdom of God doesn't consist of just talk. It consists of power and action that involves our transformation, it involves our dependence upon the Holy Spirit for our transformation and for being effective in this community. But I think the time of, we need to 
maybe lessen some of our talk and start getting to work a little bit. And finally, finally, let's be thankful to Jesus that it's in him we find all the accolade, the praise that we need. It's in him that we find value. It's in him that we find purpose. It's in him that we find forgiveness and redemption and restoration. Let's be thankful for what he has done and recognize that our identity is as servants and as stewards. And let's take joy in that. All right, that's the end. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for who you are and what you're doing. Holy Spirit, we just invite you to continue to convict, uh, to challenge, to encourage. Just like Paul wrote to the church, he there were points where he, he threw out some jabs and they, they hurt a little bit. But none of them were meant to damage. None of them were meant to cripple. None of them were meant to tear down. They're actually meant to build up. So Lord, we do. We ask that you would be building us up. We ask that you would be building up your church, the temple, which is your sons and your daughters. Holy Spirit, we do give you permission to destroy criticism and cynicism that exists in our lives highlight it and let us give it to you. Would you give us a renewed desire to serve you, King Jesus? Would you give us a renewed passion and stewarding your gospel and, and understanding that you have entrusted us your word, your mission, your heart. Let us carry you well. And we can do none of this without as we respond now as we receive prayer from the sides or as we go and take communion where the bread represents the body which was given for you and I the juice represents his blood which was shed in order that we might be part of this family and where we could be unified where we can have belonging where we can have value where we can contribute take communion this morning in celebration of Lord, release you to sing, for he alone is worthy of all praise. Let's respond now together.